bacteria are present in the environment, they're present in animals, they're present in people, they move between those three spaces pretty fluidly. So antimicrobial resistance in any one part can impact on, on the other parts. This is Rise of the Superbugs, a podcast about antimicrobial resistance. It's the intermingling of microorganisms going from humans to companion animals and from companion animals back to humans and the mixing and the evolution, the microevolution that goes on in those animals over periods of time. We make this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Mui Nina people from country around Nipaluna. They're the traditional custodians of these lands. We also pay respect to the elders both past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians listening. I'm constantly looking for birds, even without knowing I'm doing it, you know. I just see birds, you know, I hear birds as a goal flying over. In this episode, we ask... This is a family member that's suffering, please help us. I would never have imagined that we would be going through this. What if we're all more connected to superbugs than we realise? I'm Britta Jorgensen. This episode starts in the Wollongong Botanic Garden on the New South Wales east coast. My name's Terrell Nordstrom and I'm the president of Illawarra Birders, which is a local birding organisation in Illawarra. I mean, I just grew up with birds and became obsessed. (laughs) It was a beautiful sunny morning when I met up with Terrell. The botanic gardens were full of people walking around, catching up with friends and picnicking with their families. But not many of them were looking around at all the different birds. That's how it gets great fan That little sapling you see? Just moving around, that's it. People can see but don't look. I was in Wollongong in our main mall and there was a, a powerful owl, which is quite large, but it's Australia's largest owl species. It's a big bird. And it was sitting in one of the little trees they got in the mall. Hundreds of people were just walking underneath it and no one noticed. And I was just watching people. No one looked up, no one looked around. And this is magnificent bird sitting in this tree. They're brown thornbills. Like that tiny bird? Yeah, that's little tiny birds. Yeah, they're brown thornbills. They're a high-pitched little There are a lot of things we don't notice in our environment as we go about our day-to-day lives. The gradual effects of climate change, the birds finding new homes in our urban spaces as their natural habitats are lost, and the resistant bacteria they carry. So migratory birds travel great distance, they travel from Siberia in, in the, in the uh, north of, Alaska, of, of Russia and also from Alaska uh, in Canada in the tundra there and they fly all the way either down the, the whole coast of America to South America or across to Australia, New Zealand. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic travellers and they're not big birds, they're little things, you know, and they travel massive distances. It's quite remarkable. You know? As scientists are testing more and more of these migratory birds, they're finding they carry high levels of resistant bacteria. But as humans, we aren't coming into contact with these birds. We aren't patting them, and we're definitely not cuddling them. But there are some animals that many of us are in pretty close contact with. 
In Australia, we love our pets. We have more than 29 million pets, and according to a 2020 study by the RSPCA, about 61% of households in Australia have at least one pet, usually a dog. This is my cat, Pearl. She's grey and fluffy, she loves belly rubs, and she sleeps next to me at night, and I cuddle and play with her all day. We know that when you have a family that has pets within that family, part of that family, that the bacteria are shared around. My name's Laura Hardifold, I'm a veterinarian, and I work at the University of Melbourne as a researcher with the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship. So you share some bacteria with your dog and your dog shares some bacteria with you. And when you think about how pets interact in our families, it's not too surprising. Um, They share our food, they share our beds, and (laughs) especially kids, they're always licking their faces. You know, it's a very intimate relationship. They are a really important part of our families. And so but we need to be aware that the bacteria that we have we're giving to our pets and they are moving around within that environment. Laura Hardyfeld became interested in antimicrobial stewardship after she saw the way vets were using antibiotics at the veterinary practice where she was working. Sometimes the use of antibiotics wasn't as ideal as it could have been. And so I was really interested in why vets were not using antibiotics ideally. So antibiotics were being used not at the right frequency, so using them once a day instead of twice a day and using them at a lower dose than would be what we would think is appropriate. You know, vets see so many cases every day and so at the end of the day it's just easier to give a prescription than it is to have that conversation again about, you know, why it doesn't need antibiotics and what they need to do otherwise. You know, it's just easier to give a prescription and and send people out the door and the people are happy and and you can go home on time. (laughs) I think in Australia that we need to be aware but not alarmed I don't think it's a huge problem in Australia, in animals in general. We should be careful. We don't want the rates to increase and for this to become a bigger problem than it already is. But it's something that shouldn't deter us from owning animals and and looking after our animals. If if an animal needs antibiotics, it should get them. Just if it doesn't need them, it shouldn't, (laughs) is the message, I think. But sometimes an animal has an infection and antibiotics don't work. She's, she was ravaging around 60 kilos, but she's dropped quite a bit now. So she's 50-something, 50 52 kilograms. So Before she really started to go downhill, she was about 70. Yeah. She was, she's dropped a, a lot of a weight lot. since yeah. she's been going through this. So and part of that, we've been doing um, different foods. Um, You've tried everything. Yeah. My name is Jared Zabani. Um, this is my wife, Alicia Zabani. <laughs> Little Miss Evie. She runs the roost of the house. Jared, Alicia and their daughter Evie are living with an antibiotic-resistant infection in their home. So even switching to the human medications, still, as you can see, like she has that little little patch, the the scaly skin. Um, but it'll take a week or two, and if we haven't treated that one area, it will start to just flare up everywhere else. They're a busy young family, and they were getting ready for dinner when we spoke to them. So they're a bit off mic here. It's very hard to give an 
antibiotics, so we're actually her favourite thing is hot dogs. So we <laughs> we put um, we put all the medication in the hot dogs, and as you can imagine, they're the normal tablets. Yeah, just normal capsules. You know, size, so. a lot of humans struggle to swallow that sort of stuff. So we we stick them in hot dogs. Layla, their dog, has been dealing with an antibiotic-resistant skin infection for the past two years. She's a big dog, a five-year-old Alaskan Malamute, a kind of Arctic sled dog. She hates, you know, we have to actually spray her on her affected areas. As soon as you you have to walk out with your hands behind your back and as soon as she sees that, she runs and she won't come out. So, yeah, she's gone through a lot, the poor thing, and, and I think that's... It's really, yeah, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever seen. Like, uh, yeah, it's very difficult to... But, yeah, like I said, you just do anything you can. Jared and Alicia had heard of antibiotic resistance, but had no idea it could be the cause of Layla's recurring skin infections. We grew up with dogs. We They never needed to go... They'd go for vaccinations and that was it. You'd yeah. feed them, they'd come inside, they'd go to bed, you know, like... I would never have imagined that we would be going through this. And that was part of the frustration that we we didn't know about it, so we're relying on the vets to have that insight, I guess. Um, So, um, but when we felt that she wasn't getting better, it's just, it's like we were talking to a wall about, we can see that there's problems and it wasn't being resolved. That's why we ended up getting the second opinion to try and get another vet's understanding. It's just the human side of it. We just wanted that connection from the vet to like, this is a family member that's suffering, please help us. They finally found a specialist who would help. Sam Crothers, a veterinary dermatologist who specialises in skin problems. She sees a lot of antimicrobial resistance in the pets she treats. Watched uh, it being not so much of a problem to being now something I, I deal with on a daily basis. In my own experience, I feel like I'm seeing more cases now than I did two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. So, again, I'm probably looking for it more, but it's there and we have to change the way that we are doing things because of it. Yeah, Sam, yeah, Sam was invested as on a personal level to try and see better results. And so she was she obviously explained that it's a growing process. There's not many Alaskan Malamutes that are going through this at the moment, so she's using her knowledge base of, of other dogs. So just part of her professional thing, she has to tailor things differently. Medications have to be adjusted for weight and whatnot, so, you know, mm. hard road. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that people often ask me is there an alternative to antibiotics, and sometimes I have to choose that because I don't have the option of antibiotics if we're dealing with a really resistant uh, bacteria. And I think when, when I present the alternative, people really wish there was an antibiotic choice because the alternative is, is topical treatment and that for a, a lot of pets means to have a bath every single day. We've been so close. It was probably a year and a half ago yep. that we really got on top of the infection yep. and then within maybe one or two months it, she just went downhill, like just all of a sudden. We never let her sleep in the bed. We're not those type of people. Yeah. Um, we've got friends of ours that, that let that happen. We, we were always <laughs> off the carpet. Don't let her go on the carpet. She yeah. likes it. I'm a bit embarrassed now to say that I am that type of person. My cat Pearl sleeps on my bed and she's a really fluffy cat, so her fur gets everywhere. On my clothes, my furniture, my bedding. 
It makes me realise that all the bacteria she carries is getting everywhere too. As much as Layla is part of the family, she's she's still an animal, so we'd like to respect those boundaries. Um, so it's unfortunate for her that she has to live outside now, but we tried to make her comfortable. We've um, made sure that she's got a, um, two sets of beds. She's got one under the cover here, and yeah. she's got her own kennel around the back. She's a lovely dog and very compliant, but it is still a lot of work. I realise that when I'm asking people to do the daily bath, just what that involves. It's really hard to get people to do that on a daily basis. And again, we're talking for usually a minimum of a three-week process. Whether some people have the time to do that, few people have the time to do that, but also the pets got to participate in it as well. And um, some of them make it such a rigmarole that it makes it less appealing to suggest doing it. So when people ask for an alternative, I'll give them you know, what the option is, and then they'll turn around and say, could I please have an antibiotic instead? Um, and if I've got that option, I will choose that. Jared and Alicia said just understanding that antimicrobial resistant infection was even a possibility earlier on would have helped them and Layla. It took two years before we went to a dermatologist and it was explained to us. So we knew that there was something more of a problem, but um, coming from the vets, that's, that was the hard part of our initial vet visits. We were there for six months minimum and we weren't happy with the responses because we could tell that there was something that kept coming back that there was something a bigger picture that was a problem um so we got a second opinion that's when we realized that we still weren't getting anywhere because no matter what antibiotic they were giving us it was not working we left a recorder with sam to listen in on what happens during a consultation to try and understand a bit more about the dynamic between vets and the owners of the pets they treat. I'm just going to go have a look at something else on a different microscope. That one's not focusing properly. But, so I have to take this off and I'll come back in. No one's creating, or there doesn't seem to be lots of new antibiotics coming out and available. And there definitely has been um, evolution, or I don't know, disevolution, if that's even a word, where we're seeing less and less options available. My back rocking, good boys are waiting, well done. So, on the surface, you know I did this ticky tape, yeah. no infection. <coughs> Underneath, where I took the sample, yeah. um, does not look like infection, but what I, it looks like a cyst, yeah. which is fluid and skin cells all in there. And, um, I'm not sure if it's sterile, which means no bacteria, or has bacteria there as well. So I'm going to do two things. We also have to be looking at what's the reason why the infection's there in the first place. And if we don't manage that well, then we ultimately always end up with a resistant infection. Um, I'll get you new scripts for them today. And I'll see him in three to four weeks again to see if they have gone or if there's more, then we're going to do a biopsy, which means to take a sample of them. Um, and to do that, he will have to have sedation so he doesn't feel... If in the situation where you think that it is a straightforward bacterial skin infection, you've done what you were meant to do, use the appropriate course of antibiotics, use the correct antibiotic, and it hasn't turned out the way that you thought it was, your cytology says there's still infection, then that's the next step is to do a, a bacterial culture and sensitivity. And that costs money. Um, I have a lot of people stop me at that point and say, I don't have 
that money necessarily to do um, that test. But the research on superbugs in animals is quickly evolving. Professor Stephen Georgievic is a professor of infectious disease at the University of Technology in Sydney. If I would have said that our companion animals that live in our homes pose a potential threat to our health, I probably wouldn't have got too much traction about that maybe five to ten years ago. Whilst we've been also been doing work on companion animals in Australia and um, they probably are more significant than we've given them credit for in the past. Stephen focuses on researching antimicrobial resistance from a One Health perspective. One Health is a type of antimicrobial stewardship that recognises the health of all living organisms, humans, animals and the environment, is all connected. So we can't just focus only on human health or even animal health. We have to consider the health of the entire environment because microorganisms move between us all. Well, the the highest reason that dogs and cats go to a vet is because they have a urinary tract infection and the organisms that cause urinary tract infections in dogs and cats um, uh, certainly overlap with the organisms that cause urinary tract infections in humans. Stephen first became interested in antimicrobial resistance because he wanted to make vaccines that would reduce or even end the need for antibiotics in animal farming. He spent a long period of time working for the state government in the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. But I really became interested in antimicrobial resistance in the early 2000s because I could see that the vast use of antimicrobials in animal production systems would likely pose a very significant threat to how antibiotic resistance evolves. And I was very interested in understanding how it moves uh, from food production systems uh, right through aquatic systems and, 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 and cycles back through humans in both directions. We shouldn't use antibiotics as a grease to wheels in systems where there are, might be ways to redesign systems such that antibiotics are not needed. Dr Chris Degling is a senior research fellow at the Australian Centre for Health Engagement, Evidence and Values at the University of Wollongong. He says vets who work with pets have less awareness about antimicrobial resistance than vets who work with livestock, so cows, sheep, pigs, goats and chickens. So they're using far more antibiotics which are useful and used in human medicine than than veterinarians who work in in livestock uh, medicine. Chris told me the use of antibiotics by companion animal vets is because pets are more valuable. In other words, we love our pets more than farmers love their livestock. We, as animals, and we are animals, are connected to other animals, and other animals in as much as we are all mammals and we share microbes, we actually provide and complete a reservoir, if you will, of transferable microbes between species. So we're, we, we're not uniquely human and therefore safely tucked away from other species and their bugs, but we are in a pool of, of hosts where we readily transfer bugs and their resistance between each other. 
When we're preparing food, we're not usually thinking about how microbes in the animals and plants we eat can end up in our own bodies. Professor Stephen Georgievic says there's a lot more spread of resistance in our food chain than we realise. It's almost assured that lots of people are carrying uh, drug-resistant organisms in their gastrointestinal tract, so they're getting them from food, and not just meat products or animal products, they're getting it from fresh produce. We can't consider the role of animals and the environment without considering waste and wastewater. Whenever an animal or a living organism consumes an antibiotic, depending on the structure of that antibiotic and what family it belongs to, some of it, either a small amount or actually sometimes a large amount of it, is unmetabolised or partially metabolised and passed into our waste. If we want to get a better handle of this problem, we need to do a better job of cleaning up after ourselves. And we need to be able to use our wildlife as as important sentinels so that we know that when when they're no longer carrying drug-resistant bacteria, we know that we're doing a good job of cleaning up our environment because that's what they are. They're they're biosensors. They're, They're like the canary in the coal mine. We need to actually get better at cleaning up our environments so that these wonderful animals and our biodiversity is maintained. Basically, we need to be taking better care of our home, the people, the animals and the environment. And we've certainly just recently published a paper talking about an extremely drug-resistant salmonella that we isolated from the silver gull or seagulls on five islands just off the coast of Wollongong. Five Islands is home to thousands of silver gulls. Scientists have been studying the levels of antibiotic resistance in these migratory birds. Terrell spent time on Five Islands tagging birds. It's closed off to public access, but an important site for research on resistant salmonella strains. I've been out to Five Islands, um, used to do bird beating out there, we're helping with beating out there on the uh, shear waters. I wasn't actually involved in the silver goal research, but I've camped out there and there's you know, 50,000 gulls caught at night time. <laughs> I know what it's like, I know the smell, I know the noise. Yeah, yeah. What is it, can you, what is it like, can you describe it? Like- uh, extremely noisy, I mean really noisy, and pretty smelly. I mean it gets, yeah, because you've got... At one stage, it was 50,000 gulls nesting out there, which is an incredible amount. It gets pretty smelly. So we know that gulls do like to frequent municipal dumps. They also like to frequent various different stages of municipal uh, sewage sites. These sites are home to a lot of bird habitats. When I visited Terrell in the Illawarra region, I headed out to Port Kembla, to the sewerage site there, which is the best spot to see Five Islands Nature Reserve just off the coast. These wildlife hosts are are acting as not only reservoirs, but also influencing the evolution of drug resistance. Um, And it's of no fault of their own. It's partly due to not being able to prevent these animals from accessing these sites and also due to uh, their behaviours and also due to the fact that we pollute the environment. Oh, there's a bowbird. See the white... There's white flowers there? Oh, yeah. That's a male. He's bigger than the flowers. That's is it, a, is sat- it blue? It's, a, it's, it's satin. It's almost black. It's a really deep blue 
and a male's got a brilliant blue eye, dusky morning. <laughs> male's got a brilliant blue eye. After talking to Terrell, I really did start to see the natural environment in a bit of a different way. The birds aren't just part of the scenery, they're actively using the space, just like us. I think people, when they don't see it and, 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 and um, react with things, they don't value it as well. So when they destroy a, a piece of bushland down the road, people don't react so much to it. Ah, oh, it's just a bit of bush. They don't realise what's actually in that, the amount of life. From the bush, to the family home, to the vets, to the farm, our homes are full of living creatures carrying resistant bacteria that we just don't see. And by home, we mean not just the house we live in, not just our loved ones, including our pets, but the natural environment, our farm animals and wildlife as well. The One Health approach brings researchers in all these fields together to tackle the problem by looking at our planet as one interconnected system. In this episode, we asked, what if we're more connected to superbugs than we think? In the next episode, we ask, what does the future hold for superbugs? I'm Britta Jorgensen. We heard from Laura Hardyfeld, Alicia, Jared, Evie and Layla Sabani, Sam Crothers, Chris Degling and Stephen Georgievic. This episode was produced by me and Sarah Mashman. Our executive producer is Mia Lindgren. Original music by Dan Golding, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Sound engineering by Melissa May. Cover art and website by the Swinburne Design Bureau. Rise of the Superbugs is funded by an Australian Research Council Discovery Grant via Swinburne University of Technology. You can read more about the project at riseofthesuperbugs.com.